Okay, I'll just kind of talk as people come back in. It doesn't offend me, and I assume if anybody's burning to know about alopecia, they'll come in, and if they're not, they, if they miss out, they can ask me questions later. But we were talking about alopecia. So alopecia is one of the rare situations where a punch is really much, much, much more valuable than a shave. I showed you the humorous shave. How would I even know what alopecia the person had? Because the hair grows at the junction between the subcutis and the dermis. That's actually where large terminal hairs grow from, way down deep. So if you're going to gather any in useful information from uh, an alopecia specimen, you really need to see the deepest extents of the, of the process. But one thing you'll read about in the literature now, and it's more prevalent than ever before, is this concept of vertical and horizontal sections. So vertical and horizontal sections. A, a traditional, and this is how I remember it, uh, so horizontal sections are kind of the new thing to talk about. They're on the horizon. So that what's coming over the horizon is the new thing is horizontal sections. So vertical sections are the classic kind. The, what we've been looking at all day long so far are classic vertical sections. So somebody came up with the idea, well, you know, this is a vertical section, just cutting it, opening it up, and looking at the hairs growing state, straight down. Somebody came up with the idea, well, maybe you could section it a different way. Maybe you could section it like this and look at the hairs as they grow down, 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 like that. And maybe you could glean a diagnosis that way. And some people found that that technique was more useful for certain forms of alopecia. And, and so, uh, you know, that, that's probably the neat thing to do now, the vogue, the in vogue, sexy thing to do. But in fact, you can kind of do both. And at my laboratory, we do both from the same specimen. We do both horizontal and vertical sections. And one other thing that's useful is how many people like shave the hair before they do it? Good. It's better if you just clip the hair kind of short before you do your punch, if you don't want big, long hair in the way. Because the hair actually provides everybody with a big clue as to what the top, it's like saying this is the top of the specimen. Uh, so it provides all the, the histotechnologists with a good clue as to where the top of the specimen is, and you get better results that way. So uh, anyway, horizontal and vertical sections are the new thing to talk about. It's very, very, very popular. Uh, and so what you do is you end up taking a punch specimen. You can either do two punches. How many people do two punches? That's fine to do. Then you say do one horizontal and one vertical. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're not into doing two punches because of time or cost or situation or anything else, uh, you can actually have your laboratory take one punch and they can kind of divide it in half. And one they do with the classic vertical sections. Remember, classic vertical sections are like I've been describing all day long with the purple top and the pink bottom, the pink ep or purple epidermis and the pink collagen. That's just a classic vertical section. But in the other half of the specimen, you can kind of go at it downward, uh, like taking horizontal sections like this, and you end up looking at a whole bunch of hairs in cross-section. So that's the advantage. Now you're looking at hairs in cross-section. And instead of looking at hairs in their long axis, you're looking at them in cross-section. And so you look at a whole bunch more hairs at the same time. That's actually kind of probably the biggest deal about it, is you look at a whole bunch of hairs at the same time. And there's all these various ways to ensure that. And that's actually um, for, for probably more for a talk for histotechnologists. But here's classic vertical sections. This is lichen plano pilaris. And this is, this is lichen plano pilaris, and this is discoid lupus, two causes of scarring alopecia. So on vertical sections, uh, they, they look very, very similar. It's kind of hard to tell. You probably think A looks a lot like B, and B looks a lot like A. But on horizontal sections, you find that there isn't much inflammatory infiltrate surrounding the deeper 
shafts of the hairs, and you can look at a whole bunch of hairs at one time. Whereas in discoid lupus, you see a whole bunch of inflammatory cells, these purple mononuclear cells right here. You see a whole bunch of purple mononuclear cells, inflammation, surrounding the hair follicles. Everybody see the hair follicle here? This is the inflammatory infiltrate right here. This is the hair follicle right here. This is the inflammatory infiltrate right here. So some people think that by doing both, and at my laboratory we do both. We just go ahead and take a single specimen if you've only provided one, and we go ahead and do both vertical and horizontal sections that you can gain additional information into the in, uh, nature of the alopecia. And then lymphoid proliferations, they're kind of a special situation. Everybody remember, B-cell lymphoid disorders are more common in elderly patients. They're more common in the head and neck. They're more often a solitary lesion. And they often have this purple violaceous color. Uh, so, so this is a, a B-cell lymphoma right here. The only problem with lymphomas and lymphoproliferative disorders is they're very, very sensitive to crush artifact. Everybody know what crush artifact is? So let's say you do a punch and you, you push your punch down into the skin and, and then you all of a sudden, you pull your punch back out and the punch specimen stays there. It's still fixed at the bottom. So now you kind of get your forceps and you kind of wrangle around in there and you, you're trying to get to the bottom to snip it off and pull it out of the hole. Everybody understand what I mean? When you're putting all that pressure on the side of the specimen, you end up crushing all the lymphocytes. And it turns out that particularly cancerous lymphocytes white blood cells, particularly cancerous white blood cells, lymphocytes, are particularly prone to being crushed. And so then in the specimen, when I see it under the microscope, all I see is a whole bunch of crushed cells that don't stain well, they don't preserve well, they don't cut well, anything else. So especially if you think this might be a lymphoma, you want to be very, very, very gentle with the biopsy. And in fact, this is another situation where that plunger, that weird plunger biopsy might be particularly useful because you could just keep twisting, twisting, twisting until it pops off and then you could push it out with the plunger because they're very, very uh, sensitive to crush artifact. And, and in fact, one of, the, one of my clients in Denver uh, had a situation where we really wanted to make the diagnosis of lymphoma recently uh, in a biopsy of hers, but there was a lot of crush artifact, and so it made it very, very hard. And uh, that person might have thought that, oh, well, Dr. High is just complaining about crush artifact. We sent it to another place, a hematopathologist, because I'm a dermatopathologist, and he complained about the crush artifact too. So it's something to be very, very aware of with regard to lymphoproliferative disorders. <coughs> the next thing is nearly all tissue removed from a human being should be sent for analysis. It really truly should. Nearly all. I'm not a person that says real broad sweeping things like always or you know, never, things like that. But almost all tissue from a human being should be sent for analysis. And the reason is this. You know, they've looked at melanoma and seborrheic keratosis and they found that in about 1%, so 1 in 100, things that were biopsied thought to be a seborrheic keratosis, a melanoma was found. Uh, and, and here's a case that happened just two days ago. I, I was so amazed I took the picture of it. In, in one half of the lesion, there's a seborrheic keratosis, which is this kind of exophytic sticking out bump here with the increased acanthosis, the increased a, uh, epidermis, the, the epidermis of greater thickness right here. Uh, so that's a, a classic seborrheic keratosis in one half of the lesion. This is the other half of the same lesion. And, and just take my word for it, there's a flaming florid melanoma here. Look at all the pigment and everything else. So even within this specimen, there was one half of the lesion which was melanoma and one half of the lesion which was a seborrheic keratosis. And so this brings up an important point. I made these cartoons uh, myself, so uh, pardon my 
uh, my uh, uh, drawing skills, but this is a shave or a punch. Let's imagine that this is a shave or a punch. Remember I told you they get bisected one time, maybe trisected shaves, but let's just say they get bisected one time. And who does the bisection? Does the doctor do it? No. Some $14 an hour laboratory technician bisects that thing for you. So, so if the person bisects, let's say we have a seborrheic keratosis growing in contiguity with melanoma. So this darker brown area is the melanoma. This lighter brown area is the seborrheic keratosis. Let's say by pure happenstance, the person bisects the lesion this way. Then when I fold that apart, when I take that apart, I'm going to see the melanoma in one half of the specimen, and I'm going to see the seborrheic keratosis in the other half of the specimen. Does everybody understand? This is what I would be looking at under the microscope. I would see both processes. Now let's say the histotechnologist is having a bad day, he got in a fight with his girlfriend, he got uh, a dewy last night on the way home from the bar, whatever it was. He's having a bad day, and he decides real quickly that this is the best direction to bisect the specimen. What am I going to see under the microscope? Just the SK. I'm not even going to know that there's a melanoma there. So does everybody see how much random luck is involved in dermatopathology? It's going to make you scared to even practice the art anymore, isn't it? So it makes me scared. I don't even want to go home. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of random luck in, in dermatopathology. And, and if you're real cautious like I am, I was joking well, with some people up here. You know, I'm the, I'm the guy that doesn't go to Walmart after 8 p.m. because my wife won't let me. Uh, you know, I, I drive a very safe car. Uh, you know, I, I do everything safely. I, I just, I'm a safe guy. Uh, you know, even this scares me because I can't control that situation. There's nothing I can do about it. Uh, skin tags, they looked at skin tags. They looked at 1,335 skin tags, and they found that five of those 1,300 skin tags contained a malignancy. Now, thankfully, none of those skin tags were melanoma in this study, but they had four basal cells and one squamous cell. In, in those skin tags. In fact, somebody in this room sent me a, a skin tag. Uh, they thought of one of their patients not that long ago. It ha actually had a basal cell in it. She said, you know, I, I almost didn't send that, but I'm glad she did because it had a basal cell in it. So uh, uh, that, that's an important thing to remember is that even skin tags you can get fooled on sometimes. Here's a skin tag, boring as can be. Just a, uh, uh, Here's this normal skin surface. Here's this exophytic papule right here. A norm, boring, boring, boring. This is just one of my patients that I presented at uh, uh, Melanoma in the Mountains, a conference that we have in Colorado uh, for dermatopathologists. Uh, this was a, submitted as a tag uh, from the neck of a 34-year-old woman, and inside this tag, here's the skin surface right here, inside this tag was this florid, horrible, horrible melanoma. Family practitioner said she almost didn't send it in. She almost just threw it in the trash can. This person died already uh, of their melanoma. So, so it does happen. It's rare, but it does happen. I mean, if you could play the statistics, you could, you could run your whole career throwing the acrocordons in the trash and probably get away with it. But if you don't, how bad are you going to kick yourself? If you're like me, you're going to kick yourself pretty hard because I'm a safe guy. I like to do things safely. If you're a gambler, if you've been you know, out at the casinos on a riverboat or whatever you can do down here in Florida, maybe that doesn't bother you. Maybe you're completely happy with that. But I'm not happy with that. I send all my tissue. For, for histopathologic examination. If I do a whole bunch of tags, I sometimes use ink, just like uh, the Mohs ink. I go ahead and make one tag black, one tag yellow, one tag blue, one tag green, one tag red, put those five in a bottle, do it again, put a, the other five in a bottle, do it again, and now I've gotten away with three charges for histopathology, but I've done 15 tags. 
Now occasionally, if I've done tags on a person repeatedly for a long period of time, I will go ahead and pitch them in the garbage. So I didn't say always, but you know, I, I do that after I've documented already that the person has a whole large number of tags, uh, all that appear bland and boring, and therefore I've kind of established that that's his modus operandi, and I go ahead and then start making accommodations to his wishes. And then the last thing is finish strong. I already mentioned this. You know, neutral buffered formalin MBF comes in all these different bottle sizes. Uh, but importantly, you know, you're supposed to have 10 times the volume of liquid to the specimen size. And, and that, that routine, that rule is violated all the time. People shove as much tissue as they can from their excisions in there. And the result is that the specimen doesn't pickle very good. And I'm kind of using the word pickle informally. It doesn't pickle as good. And such, I don't get as good histology and I don't end up with as good a result as I could as if they, they went ahead. And if it's a really large excision, you should just take a urine cup and go ahead and empty, uh, you know, open it up and then empty some formalin bottles onto it. But it really should have a good, generous volume of formalin, particularly nowadays where we force everybody to have these ridiculously short turnaround times. It might not spend any more time in the formalin than the time it sits in your office. Once it gets to the lab, it might immediately put out, take it, be taken out of the formalin. So it's important to remember. And then laboratory after-hours pickup boxes. Every once in a while, this happened just the other day as the temperatures dropped in Colorado, where I'm from. Uh, all of a sudden, I started to see this artifact in tissue. Started to see this artifact. And I just called the little, we have a customer service agent. I just called her in and I said, you need to call Dr. Chung up and you need to tell him to move the box onto the inside of, inside of his door. Uh, it, so it's in his lobby because this is freeze artifact. So formalin will freeze just like water. In fact, its, its freezing point is only two degrees lower than that of water, uh, 0.2 degrees lower than that of water. So formalin will freeze, and if you put this box on the outside of the door in Colorado, the tissue will freeze and the formalin will freeze, and you'll get this artifact, and again, crap in, crap out, your result won't be as good as if you moved that into the door. So this is not a good place for your uh, pickup box, but inside the hallway would be an ideal place for your pickup box. And then the last thing, I've mentioned this already, turnaround time. Seems like every time I, I uh, turn around, somebody wants me to go faster, 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 faster. Uh, and, and that might be true to a point. You know, I hate to have reports that are outstanding like seven, eight, nine days. I do on occasion if I'm waiting for genetic studies or something like that. But I don't like it any more than you do because I worry that I'm going to forget about it entirely and never come back to it. But there is research in pharmacy, nursing, medicine that demonstrates that medical errors are associated with hectic work environments and interruptions and distractions. So, so the harder you press your dermatopathologist for a result sometimes, the more likely you are to make him uh, uh, or her uh, uh, fall into a pattern of a mistake. And so that was even independent of the experience of the practitioner. So I'm very experienced. I talk a lot. I lecture a lot. I write a lot of textbooks. And I could still get rattled by, you know, that constant push to get things out faster. So sometimes I joke around with our sales representatives and things like that when they're complaining about turnaround time. And I say, well, do they want it fast or did they want the right answer? I, I don't care. I can do it fast. But if they want the right answer, then I'm going to have to take a little bit of time to think about this, particularly on a difficult case. So. Turnaround time's good, it is, and it's important, and I should be better about it. I always tell the rep I should be better about it, I should be more studious about it, but you want to make sure that they're actually doing good work. So don't get sold only by the next person that walks in your office to detail you on something. If they list some ridiculous turnaround, like 95% of our specimens are turnaround in 24 hours, then say, gosh, I wonder how many of their specimens are right. Uh, because the faster you go, the more likely you are 
to make an error, and that's just, that's just the truth. Remember Domino's Pizza used to say 30 minutes or less, and then they got hit with like 15, $80 million lawsuits, and now it's probably 30 minutes, or we'll give you a coupon or something like that. So uh, it's never good to rush too much. And then the last thing is big heads and false idols. I have a few people in my practice, uh, a few clients of mine that truly believe that they are here. And they're not. They're here. My kids are closer to here than they are. Okay, so, so, so every day I've got a whole bunch of people that want something from me. And so do you guys. I understand that. I don't think I'm special. Uh, every day I've got my wife wants something from me. My two little kids want something from me. My secretary wants something from me. Your course director wants some CME or CV or something, objectives or something. I've got a million people that want something from me every single day. And then on top of that, I've got people that want rush results or in-FOS processing where I look at the whole perimeter of the margin like a Mohs surgeon. And, and all those people want something. And if they push too hard, they're going to get a bad result. They're going to make me make a decision I shouldn't have made. Trying to, trying to be fast. So you really don't want to, you want to actually tell the patient, you know, we really want this right. It might take a little while to get a good result, but we really want to make sure. And you can start setting the, the situation for calm and serenity even at your office. You can say, you know, we're going to take a little extra time with this because it's a difficult case. And you wouldn't want us to go real fast, would you? No, no, okay, sure, surely not. But if you start, if you, if you take the opposite tack, and instead of setting the stage for serenity, you set the stage for stress and upheaval. Boy, you know, I'm going to call that guy, and I'm going to find out where this specimen is, and this is ridiculous. You're setting the stage for an error, and you're going to be, again, like I told you, just with the tags. At some point, something bad's going to happen, and you're going to wish you hadn't been that way. It's just a promise from a guy who's been doing it for a decade or more. Uh, you're going to be better to set the stage for a calm, serene environment. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the other half of, of the, of the uh, uh, specimen uh, session process, the reporting phase. I'm still the same guy, still have the same job. So at the heart of every dermatopathology report is the skill of the dermatopathologist. Truly, it's a black art. There's no melanoma stain, there's no squamous cell carcinoma stain, there's no basal cell carcinoma stain, there's nothing I can do, even with mycosis fungoides, I told you, even clonality isn't a guarantee that it's mycosis fungoides, even positive clonality. So there's not any one thing, you're always depending upon the skill of your dermatopathologist, so know who they are. I'm horrified when I find out that some people don't even know, well, I don't know, I just kind of send it and something pops out of the fax machine and, you know, figure out who they are. Because there's different types. There's the gambler. The gambler knows that, you know, margins are probably okay. There's a little bit of the epidermis missing over here, but nah, it's probably all right. You know, I got a golf date, and I got some important things to do, and I'm just going to go ahead and take a risk myself. And they're taking a risk for you, too. You know, it's sort of like sexually transmitted diseases or something. Your partner's doing something that's going to impact your life. Uh, so so you, you don't necessarily want a gambler. And then there's the invisible man dermatopathologist. You don't know who they are. You know, it said you know, John Smith on the bottom of the lab report. I'm sure they know what they're doing. You know, uh, and that happens for two reasons. Either it's big box dermatopathology, big name lab, you know. Uh, I, I won't say any, any specific because it's not, it's not really my place to, to push or, or pull against any uh, business up here on the podium, but uh, let's just say it's a big name dermatopathology group, and you know they promise you that this guy can actually read your slides, but actually it turns out that this guy does most of your work, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, or there's just this other phenomenon of boy, I just love that salesman. He's so cute. That's what I hear from my from the MAs, and think boy, that salesman's good looking. 
Uh, we're just going to go ahead and use his uh, uh, services. Well, your salesman isn't reading the slides. Your salesman's just delivering, I don't know, pens or whatever your salesman does. So, so the guy reading the slides is actually the person that's going to get you in trouble. So, so try to dissuade your MAs of the idea that they should go with the cutest salesman. Um, this, is, this is me, I'll admit it. I'm totally nerdy. I'm dorky. I, I know the percentages of all the stains. I know that this will mark melanoma 78% of the time, and this will mark. And, and, I, I, and I, I practice dermatopathology very, in a very nerdy fashion. I love this guy. I'm an actuary. Look it up. You know, I practice actuarial dermatopathology. I don't want any bad things to happen to me. I want anything bad to happen to my family. I don't want anything to happen to my clients. So I'm constantly thinking, well, what's the worst possible situation that come, could come here? What's the odds of that happening? How can I mitigate those odds? How can I take those odds lower? And I think that's the dramatopathology that you actually want in the end, is this kind of nerdy uh, Egbert type of guy. Um, but by the same token, getting a good diagnosis is a team effort. I told you, you know, you can't be successful with this not-my-job attitude. How many people think that if, if anything was wrong with the dermatopathology report, it would be only the fault of the dermatopathologist? He's the only person that would get in trouble. That, that's not how it works. When an error happens, every single person gets thrown up against the wall. They actually pay people $7 an hour, and I know as an attorney, they actually pay people $7 an hour to just go through the chart with a yellow highlighter, and anytime they see an MD, DO, NP, PA, highlight that name. And that person gets uh, named in the lawsuit. And they, the lawyers actually have this philosophy. We'll just sue them all, and we'll see who settles with us. If you settle with us for $25,000, that's $25,000 I didn't have. Yeah, sure, you didn't deserve it, but this is a business transaction to an attorney. This isn't a, a right or wrong deal. This is a business transaction. I got $25,000 from you. I got $50,000 from the, from the uh, uh, supervising doctor, and I got $150,000 from the dermatopathologist. So I'm in good shape. So, so don't think that, oh, you're going to, you know, it's actually his fault. You know, that's why I don't want you to take risks with an unknown dermatopathologist you've, you don't know, you've never met, you have no idea what their qualifications are, anything like that. It's dangerous. They're, they're actually playing with your life, too. So anytime you get a dermatopathology report back, this is our dermatopathology report. This is what it looks like. It's, you know, not the, necessarily the, the, the right or wrong way to do it, but this is how ours look. Uh, you should ask yourself, is this my patient? Does the gross information and technique match? Look how we, we started doing this at my bequest. We started putting shave in capital letters in bold right here. So it should stand out at you and say, gosh, I did a punch. That's weird. Uh, you know, things like that. Does the gross size match? How many people actually read the gross? You actually should. You actually should. Well, yeah, that's about the size that it was, as I recall, 0.5 by 0.5 by 0.1. That's about right. Was my, uh, is my history right? Did somebody copy the history wrong? What if this history is completely different than what you thought? Well, maybe your MA put the wrong thing on the form. Maybe the dermatopathologist read the wrong thing. And then lastly, you know, here's the diagnosis. Does that diagnosis make sense? Is that really what I was thinking? Because again, this isn't a stone tablet in a burning bush. No pathology report is beyond reproach. reproach. Everyone makes mistakes. I make mistakes. My staff makes mistakes. Uh, uh, my mentors made mistakes. Uh, everybody makes mistakes. So you can't take it as a, as a stone tablet from God. It's just... It's really just an opinion. I, I thought this when I looked at the tissue. It could be wrong for a variety of reasons, some of which maybe don't have anything to do with me. But you always want to be asking yourself, does this make any sense? Oh. <coughs> oh, shit. All right. 
So here we go. Here is a path report. Uh, the impression is uh, junctional nevus with architectural disorder and moderate cytologic atypia and junctional nevus with severe atypia. These are not my reports. I wasn't involved in this case at this point, and I took away anything. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad or look bad or anything else. Here is the patient. That is melanoma. If you get anything back other than melanoma, how many people have ever seen a nevus that's like four by six centimeters and, and which grows in this kind of stellate star of death type pattern here? That, 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 that's, like, that's like not, there's no conceivable way on planet Earth that that is an atypical nevus. So at this point, what should have happened and what didn't happen, this just happened the other day, what should have happened is someone should have picked up the phone and been like, you know, Dr. Smith, there's no conceivable way on God's green earth that's a nevus. Can I send you the picture? And you can take a look at the slides again. Thanks so much. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Love you too. Bye. That, that's what should have happened. Okay? What didn't happen is any of that. The, the, the dermatologist said, oh, wow, weird, crazy. What a weird nevus. Months and months and months went by. This person went to a different dermatologist who immediately said, that's a melanoma, and did a huge excision, sent it to me, and it was a melanoma 1.6 millimeters deep. So is it necessarily all the dermatopathologist's fault? Mm -mm, not at all. Uh, the dermatopathologist probably got one punch from over here and maybe one punch from, the, it actually looks like he probably got a punch there and a punch there from the scar, but uh, who knows. So he got a bad sample, a bad result came out, but there was no recovery. There was time to recover. The clinician could have been like, that makes no sense whatsoever. And, and, and that's what should have happened. There was time to recover from that error. Now, this person may literally sue those people, and she'll have a legitimate complaint with both the dermatopathologist and with the clinician. Okay? So, uh, the important sites of, of uh, information, the diagnosis, the comments, but you also want to pay attention to the gross description and the microscopic description as well. How much of the report is the ordering physician or the ordering uh, practitioner responsible for reading and understanding? All of it. It's like when, when the people told me, on, well, don't say that about the sample because, you know, I don't want people to think that I have the duty to get a, a representative sample. Well, guess what? You do. Whether I say it or don't, you do. In this state, it's your job. In the state of Colorado, it's your job to read 100% of the dermatopathology report. You can't just read the diagnosis line and the comments. You can't, you have to, you're responsible for the whole thing. If there's one tiny clue that that diagnosis is wrong somewhere in the report, it's your responsibility legally. That's why I said you'll all get thrown up against the wall. So how can you get around this? Uh, you should pay attention to things for levels or step sections. We talked about up here uh, at the break, levels or step sections. So somebody asked me, well, how much of the specimen are you actually looking at? Less than 1%. I'm looking at less than 1% of what you turn in and trying to make a diagnosis for the whole entire thing. So one way you can get around that is something called levels or step sections, which is cutting deeper into the block. Usually it's done in sets of three, and so literally, you know, the tissue is coming out of the block like it's coming at you at the audience, and it's just whacking off deeper levels of tissue into the block. Everybody make, does that make sense to everybody? And so I'm looking at a different part. So now instead of looking at 1%, I'm looking at 3% or something like that. So, so I'm looking at more of the tissue. So let's see how that works. Rule out non-melanoma skin cancer. Nothing else provided. No other data, no size, no strength of suspicion, anything like that. This is level number one has the same problem that we already talked about. 
The epidermis, which is the purplish uh, colored uh, component is transected, multiple areas. It's transected here, it's transected here, it's transected here. I don't know 100% what's going on anyway. So I try to do multiple levels. So this is level three. Aha, what's this purple stuff over here? So I look a little bit closer. Oh, it's a tiny, world's tiniest basal cell carcinoma. <laughs> so what if I hadn't ordered levels? What if I had signed this out as an AK? It is an AK, there's an actinic keratosis there. I would have missed the basal cell carcinoma. So I told you I'm a super cautious person. I ordered way more levels than any of my other compa compatriots in the lab. I ordered more stains than everybody, and I still sign out more cases. So, so, but I, they all tease me about it. I get lots of levels, I get lots of stains. Um, but this is why, because I'm always worried there's something that I'm missing, I'm always worried. So if you get a result back, uh, if you wrote rule out non-melanoma skin cancer, but you really meant rule in non-melanoma skin cancer, there's no way on God's green earth that's not a basal cell carcinoma. And you look in the report, and you can't find a statement that says, you know, blah, 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 one slide and other slides that represent step sections. See, I always put in my microscopic description uh, the original slide and three other slides that represent step sections. You know that I did levels. So if that statement isn't there, you know I probably didn't do levels. So you might call me and say, hey, you know what? I really, really, really thought that was basal cell carcinoma. Would you mind going ahead and doing some levels on that for me? And I'll be, wow, never had anybody ask me for levels before. Sure, I'd be happy to do those levels for you. And I'd go ahead and do the levels, and I'd find the basal cell carcinoma. So that's what levels are. They're cutting deeper into the tissue. This is where you look for them in the microscopic description. It should say either, if I didn't do levels, the, the sentence would end right there, period. But it doesn't. It goes on and says, and three other slides that represent step sections. Sometimes for scabies, I've done nine or ten levels before I found the, the single scabies mite. So, so levels are usually done in, 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 in kind of trays of three. I'll do three levels. I'll do three more levels. I'll do three more levels. They're usually done in sets of three, but, uh, but you can do multiple sets of three. Immunostains. Everybody know what immunostains and special stains are? So immunostains look for a certain epitope. They look for a certain epitope, like let's say CD34, CD34. So there's a certain epitope sticking out on the surface of the, uh, of the cell, and those stains are designed to bind to that epitope. And then you use yet another stain that's either red or brown, called a chromogen, which then stains that antibody, and then the end result is that you get either red or brown staining tissue. So that's an immunostain. Special stains are anything else, like a brown Bren stain, which is a variant of the Gram stain, or a PAS stain, which is a periodic acid shift stain for fungus, or a GMS stain, which is Camori's methenamine silver. Those are all special stains because they don't depend upon the antibody antigen phenomenon. They're just special chemical stains that we do. But these are, are, are stains that we do to try to help elucidate an opinion when, when our H&E our &E methods are failing us. So here's a case, it was a 79-year-old man, it was from Kansas, it said rule out nub, didn't say anything else. So it's the chest wall, rule out nub, which that, that office uses as neoplasm of uncertain behavior. That's all I know, don't know anything else. So I'm looking at this case, and I think, well gosh, this could be something called a benign lichenoid keratosis. There's lymphocytes in the dermis forming a lichenoid band. But I look a little closer and I say, gosh, that looks like a nest of melanocytes right there, but it's so hard to see. There's so much inflammation here. I'm not really sure. 
So I go ahead and I get a Milan A immunostain. So this is a stain that Milan A, you might guess, stains melanocytes. It's a special stain designed to stain melanocytes. And so it stains them brown, and I see all these melanocytes that I couldn't even really see by H&E alone. I couldn't even see them. But now I see all of them. So this is melanoma in situ. So I asked the, the person in Kansas, I said, well, what does this lesion look like? Oh, shoot, I don't have the picture. The, the picture is a, literally a plaque six centimeters across uh, that, that's all different colors, black, gray, blue, yellow, and they wrote rule out nub. So I'm hoping that if I would have called that a benign lichenoid keratosis, and I almost, almost did, I almost didn't order the stain, uh, that they would have called me and said, you know what, there's no way that was anything but a melanoma. But what if they didn't? Think back to the, to the heel case I showed you a little while, long, uh, a little while ago. So, so this is a use of a special stain to see something that you couldn't even see at all, barely. I, I thought I caught a glimpse of it right there, and I ordered the stain, and it's all over the place. All these melanocytes in the